Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore the beginnings of Scotland's largest city, Glasgow, then travel south into Lanarkshire to experience the world's longest echo, 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 then northwest across the Clyde to Scotland's most ancient capital, before finishing back in Glasgow to find out where English comics went to die. Stop 1. St Mungo's Cathedral, Glasgow. It is the cleanest and beautifulest and best built city in Britain. According to author and travel writer Daniel Defoe, who visited Glasgow in 1707. And certainly, when seen from the flagpole on the hill in Queen's Park, south of the Clyde, with the glittering river winding westward before its towers and spires rising from the vale against the snow-capped backdrop of Ben Lomond and the Campsie Fells, Glasgow is a magnificent sight, befitting what was once known as the Second City of Empire. It all began in the 6th century AD, when the Christian missionary St Mungo, illegitimate son of King Owain of the border kingdom of Reged, established a small wooden church at a glass co, from the old British for Green Hollow, beside the Melendina Burn, where Scotland's first saint, St Ninian, had blessed a Christian burial site some 200 years before. This is where Glasgow gets its affectionate nickname, the Dear Green Place. King David I dedicated the first stone church on the site in 1136, and the present cathedral building was consecrated in 1197, and built up over the next 300 years into the biggest Gothic building in Scotland and the only complete medieval cathedral on the Scottish mainland, the only other being St Magnus in Kirkwall on Orkney. Uniquely, Glasgow's St Mungo's survived the Scottish Reformation of 1559-60 undamaged, thanks to the courage of the people of Glasgow, who turned out in huge numbers to protect their beloved church from the rampaging mob. 
the cathedral sits on a slope that falls away at the eastern end towards the burn, and so the east end of the cathedral has two stories. St Mungo's tomb, which marks his actual burial place, can be found amongst the waving forest of pillars and Gothic vaulting of the magnificent lower church, the glory of Glasgow's cathedral and unique amongst the cathedrals of Britain. St Mungo's is also one of the few British cathedrals that you can see in its entirety from the outside, and the best place to appreciate the cathedral's satisfying proportions, with its long uniform rows of Gothic windows and perfect 225-foot-high 15th-century spire, is from the melodramatic necropolis to the east, Scotland's first and most spectacular garden cemetery, which is reached from the cathedral via the aptly named Bridge of Sighs. The necropolis, which was based on the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, was established in 1833 and covers an entire hill with high Victorian monuments, tombs, statues, sculptures and sarcophagi. All are watched over by a vast towering statue of the religious reformer John Knox, put up in 1825, whose stern, forbidding gaze admonishes the wretched souls scattered at his feet, and is so lifelike that the insignificant awestruck visitor cannot help but brace for a blast of many trumpets to ring out across the spine-chilling City of the Dead. Almost every eminent Glaswegian of the city's glory days is buried here, or at least has a memorial here. One such memorial, paid for by public subscription, is to William Miller, author of the popular bedtime nursery rhyme Wee Willy Winky, who, like most of us writers, died penniless, and is buried in Tollcross in another part of Glasgow. Someone who actually does lie here, in person so to speak, but who most definitely did not die penniless is Charles Tennant, the chemist and industrialist who invented bleaching powder, built the largest chemical works in the world, which became ICI, and spawned a dynasty that included the brightest of the bright young things of the 1920s, Stephen Tennant, model for Sebastian Flight in Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, and the noted socialite author and wit Margot Tennant, who married the Prime Minister Herbert Henry Asquith. Amongst her shrewd observations on life and her husband's political colleagues were... He couldn't see a belt without hitting below it. She said of her husband's successor, Lloyd George. He has a brilliant mind until he makes it up. This of the Labour MP, Sir Stafford Cripps. And her view of Lord Kitchener... If he was not a great man, he was at least a great poster. To the actress Jean Harlow, who repeatedly mispronounced her name Margot. No, no, Jean. The T is silent, as in Harlow. 
and a couple of her general observations on life. The Bible tells us to forgive our enemies, not our friends. What a pity when Christopher Columbus discovered America that he ever mentioned it. But back to the cathedral. St Mungo's is a hidden jewel that not only marks where Glasgow began but is one of the great medieval cathedrals of Britain and it deserves to be better known than it is. It sits slightly off the tourist trail, of course, since the centre of Glasgow has shifted southwest to the Victorian cathedrals of Mammon, the banks and the merchant houses around St George's Square. But the intrepid visitor who dares to venture east beyond the delights of Sockyhall Street will not be disappointed. Best not to catch the eye of John Knox, though. Stop 2. Hamilton Mausoleum, Hamilton. China has its terracotta army, India has its Taj Mahal, Egypt has its pyramids, and Scotland has the Hamilton Mausoleum. Known as El Magnifico, it is a huge bedomed structure, 123 feet high, standing in the grounds of the Longarn Hamilton Palace, and built over 15 years between 1842 and 1858 as a monument and family tomb for the 10th Duke of Hamilton, who was, like his mausoleum, also nicknamed El Magnifico. He was married to the daughter of the richest man in England, William Beckford, and used his or her fortune not only to turn Hamilton Palace, begun by the third Duchess in 1695, into the largest private residence in Europe, but also to build himself a mausoleum worthy of someone worthy of the moniker El Magnifico. Beneath the dome of the mausoleum, which was originally entered through vast solid bronze doors based on those at the baptistry in Florence, is an octagonal chapel, at the centre of which is a plinth of solid black marble, on which once sat a priceless Egyptian sarcophagus containing the body of the 10th Duke of Hamilton himself. He was a tall man, over six foot in height, and it has never quite been explained how his body was fitted into the sarcophagus, which is eight inches shorter, although the rumour is that his legs were rearranged with a sledgehammer, rather like what Kathy Bates did to James Kahn in the film Misery. I wonder if that's where she got the idea. Anyway, the niches around the bottom of the dome, which were originally meant for statues, make for a remarkable whispering gallery, for if you stand facing into one of the niches and whisper, 
you can be heard as clear as day by someone facing into a niche on the opposite wall. A bit like Twitter, really. But alas, the chapel was never used for worship, for it possesses an unexpected side effect, a remarkable echo that repeats and deepens any sound made into an awesome cacophony, making services impossible. The great bronze doors have been replaced by oak doors, but the slamming of those oak doors creates an echo that lasts for 15 seconds, the longest echo of any man-made structure in the world. At least it was until 2014, when the record was broken at the Inchin Down oil storage tanks near Invergordon in the Scottish Highlands. Although this echo had to be measured by scientists, and seems to me like a bit of a cheat, since those tanks are clearly industrial. The floor of the chapel is a mosaic of different marbles from around the world, and in the east wall is the entrance to the crypt where slept the lesser members of the family. Rather like a pyramid, there are three entrances to the crypt, two false and one genuine. Above each entrance is a carved head, representing life, death and immortality. Spookily, although they are all carved from the same stone, life and death have worn badly away while immortality has remained as fresh and new as the day it was created. Above the heads are two stone lions guarding the entrance, one alert, one apparently sleeping. Altogether, there were ten dukes and three duchesses resident in the mausoleum, but the whole edifice, like Hamilton Palace itself, was built above the Hamilton's own coal mines and over time began to subside into them. In 1921, as a precaution, the Duke's sarcophagus and all the residents were removed from the mausoleum and reinterred in Bent Cemetery south of Hamilton. While the palace had to be demolished, the mausoleum somehow still manages to stay standing and can be visited by booking an appointment with the Low Parks Museum who run the site. A visit is highly recommended. The experience is fraught with interest. Also fraught with interest are many of the Hamiltons. The name comes from the early 14th century, when a Norman knight, one Walter Fitzgilbert de Hambledon, of Hambledon in Northumberland, owner of Bothwell Castle on the banks of the Clyde southeast of Glasgow, decided to throw in his lot with Robert the Bruce after the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, and was rewarded with the Lairdship of Cadzoy, a castle and estate across the Clyde from Bothwell Castle. Cadzoy was renamed Hamilton in the 15th century. The first Lord Hamilton married Princess Mary, daughter of King James II of Scotland and so the Hamiltons became part of the Royal House of Stuart. Their grandson, James Hamilton II Earl of Arran, 
who, as great-grandson of James II, was second in line to the throne behind the infant Mary, Queen of Scots, became regent, and negotiated the marriage of Mary to the Dauphin of France, no doubt hoping that with Mary out of the way in France, the throne of Scotland might become his. It didn't. The third Marquess of Hamilton carried the sword of state at Charles I's coronation in London in 1625, and was later raised to Duke of Hamilton. He was executed by Oliver Cromwell after fighting for the Stuarts at the Battle of Preston in 1648, during the War of Three Kingdoms in the Second Civil War. The second Duke was killed fighting for the future Charles II at the Battle of Worcester in 1652. His niece, Anne, daughter of the first Duke, then became third Duchess of Hamilton in her own right. Incidentally, a grandson of the third Duchess was Sir William Hamilton, husband of Lord Nelson's mistress, Emma Hamilton. The fourth Duke lost the family fortune in the ill-fated Darien Scheme, a plan to establish a Scottish colony in Panama, which bankrupted the Scottish government and led to the Union of England and Scotland in 1707. And he was then killed in an infamous duel in London's Hyde Park by the fourth Baron Mohan, who was also killed. The sixth Duke married Elizabeth, one of the beautiful Miss Gunning's sisters, the most beautiful women in the world, who we met in episode 4 about the East Midlands. The tenth Duke, El Magnifico, we know all about. And the eleventh Duke married the granddaughter of the Emperor Napoleon, and their daughter Mary married Prince Albert I of Monaco, whose son Louis introduced the first Monaco Grand Prix in 1929. Hence, we owe the most glamorous Grand Prix of the season and the present Prince Albert of Monaco to the Hamiltons. The 14th Duke of Hamilton, before he became Duke, was the youngest squadron leader of his day and commander of the famous 602 Glasgow Squadron, the first squadron to be issued with Spitfires. In 1935, flying an open biplane, he became the first person to fly over Mount Everest, flying higher than any man had ever flown before. In 1936, he flew to Germany to attend the Berlin Olympics, and while there mingled with a number of academics who would go on to become advisers to Hitler's deputy Rudolf Hess. In 1941, Hess parachuted into a field in Eaglesham in Renfrewshire, apparently to meet with the Duke to discuss a possible peace treaty between Britain and Germany. Hess was arrested by a local farmer and asked to be taken to the Duke, who recognised him and immediately informed Winston Churchill. And Hess was imprisoned for the rest of his life, dying in Spandau prison in 1987, aged 93. American founding father Alexander Hamilton, aide de camp to George Washington at the Battle of Yorktown, and architect of the American financial system, and subject of a hugely successful Broadway musical, 
was descended from the Hamiltons of Grange, from the Ayrshire branch of the Hamiltons. He was killed in a duel by Thomas Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr. As he says in the musical, I probably shouldn't brag, but dag I amaze and astonish. All the Hamiltons, especially the 10th Duke, have, in their way, amazed and astonished. Stop 3. Dumbarton. Apparently the title Earl of Dumbarton is going begging. I'll have it. It's the most prestigious title, for Dumbarton is a place of great antiquity and historic importance, and one of the most ancient royal sites in Britain. Indeed, Dumbarton Rock is Scotland's most ancient capital and has been fortified longer than anywhere else in Britain. The name comes from the Gaelic Dun, meaning fort, and Briatan, meaning Britons, hence Fort of the Britons. Why it is called Dumbarton with an M rather than Dunbarton with an N, like the county Dunbartonshire, nobody seems to know, although it probably stems from a mishearing of the letter N. Both spellings have been used over the years. Dumbarton Rock is a 240-foot-high volcanic plug split in two that lies some eight miles west of Glasgow at the mouth of the River Leven, where it meets the Clyde. It is almost impregnable, as the only means of access is along an easily defended set of steep stairs that climb the narrow gully between the two plugs. There is evidence of an early Iron Age fortress on the rock, and in the 4th and 5th centuries there was a Roman fort there, protecting the western end of the Antonine Wall, northern boundary of the Roman Empire. It then became the capital of one of the many Britannic kingdoms that formed after the Romans left, and it was the last stronghold of the Britons to succumb to the Saxons, finally surrendering to King Edbert of Northumberland in AD 756, and it was capital of the Kingdom of Strathclyde until 1018, when Strathclyde and the Kingdom of Scotland merged. Dumbarton became a royal borough in 1222, one of three remaining Scottish royal fortresses, the others being Edinburgh and Stirling. In 1305, William Wallace was held in Dumbarton Castle before being taken to his execution in London, and a young Mary Queen of Scots took refuge in the castle as a child before escaping to France to marry the Dauphin. Dumbarton Castle held out longer for Mary than anywhere else in Scotland after she had fled to England in 1568.
All that remains of the various castles that were built on the rock are part of a 16th century guardhouse and the 18th century governor's mansion along with its artillery fortifications. A steep climb of over 500 steps to the top of the rock is rewarded with spectacular views, east along the Clyde to Glasgow and the Erskine Bridge, south across Renfrewshire and Paisley, west to Gareloch and the Rosneath Peninsula, and north to where Ben Lomond looms over Britain's largest lake, Loch Lomond. Perhaps the most distinguished inhabitant of Dumbarton is the patron saint of Ireland, St Patrick, who was born in a tiny fishing village below the eastern walls of the rock, known now as Old Kilpatrick. As a teenager, he was abducted from Dumbarton by Irish pirates and taken to Ireland, where he worked as a shepherd and became converted to Christianity, and the rest is history. Who knows what a different history might have been written if Patrick had taken refuge on Dumbarton Rock when the pirates came calling, and thus avoided capture. I really wouldn't mind being Earl of Dumbarton. Stop 4, Socky Hall Street, Glasgow. There were demanding audiences, hard-to-please audiences, and even downright hostile audiences. And then there was the Glasgow Empire. Mention the most infamous building on Glasgow's most famous street, Socky Hall Street, to any English comic and he will go pale. The Glasgow Empire. Where English comics go to die. The Glasgow Empire, designed by Frank Matcham, was one of Britain's leading theatres from the moment it opened, at 31 to 35 Socky Hall Street in 1874. All the greats appeared there, Laurel and Hardy, Harry Lauder, Danny Kaye, Tony Bennett, Andy Stewart, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Jack Benny, Ella Fitzgerald. The list goes on. And they were all warmly welcomed by the city with the big heart. Unless, that is, it was the late Friday or Saturday night audience, and the act was English. Even the famously fearless Ken Dodd called the Glasgow Empire a place of fear, especially as the pubs would close at 9.30. Licensing laws meant that no drink could be served after 
which meant that the interval during the second house on a Friday or Saturday night was the last opportunity the audience, usually made up of hard-bitten workers from the shipyards, had for spending their hard-earned wages, so they would stock up on booze before going back into the auditorium for the second half of the show, ready to enthusiastically express their views about any act that didn't make them laugh, by throwing insults, and occasionally bolts and rivets, at the performers. As soon as Ken Dodd walked out on stage, a bloke in the audience shouted, Oh, what a horrible sight! and collapsed drunk in a heap. The audience were with Ken all the way after that, but fortunately he managed to shake them off at the station. Namby-pamby English acts were a favourite target, and like a thoroughbred horse the Glasgow audience could smell fear. Des O'Connor only made it out alive by pretending to faint, and was dragged off stage under the curtains by the stagehands, until only the soles of his shoes could be seen, with the words, Good night all, written across them. Morkman Wise used to love to tell that story, to ease the pain of their own experience at the Glasgow Empire. The audience sat throughout their act in almost complete silence, broken only by a low, menacing growl in the background, and as they sloped off stage to the sound of their own footsteps, the sad-faced fireman who always stood in the wings lazily flicked his cigarette ash into the fire bucket and muttered, Oh, they're beginning to like you. They must have done, because as the comedian Johnny Beatty said, If they like you, they let you live. What made things worse was if the two big Glasgow football clubs, Rangers and Celtic, had both lost, and the crowd were in a disgruntled mood. The trouble with Sigmund Freud is that he never played second house at the Glasgow Empire when both the old firm sides had lost, remarked Ken Dodd, while the second house Glasgow Empire on a Saturday, when Rangers and Celtic have both lost, was Bob Monkhouse's definition of hell. One of his favourite jokes was, they laughed when I said I was going to become a comedian. They're not laughing now. This, alas, proved only too true at the Glasgow Empire, where Monkhouse's performance raised not even a titter. Mike and Bernie Winters suffered. Mike opened the act with a bright tune on the clarinet, and after a couple of minutes, Bernie thrust his cheery, bowler-hatted face through the curtains, suffused with a leery grin. A moment that usually garnered a huge round of applause. Instead, a sinister Glaswegian voice piped up from the audience. Oh, Christ, there's two of them! The multi-talented Roy Castle began with a song, then did some jokes and followed with a tap dance. All to silence. Then, as he started to play his trumpet... A member of the audience turned to his friend 
and in a deadpan stage whisper that rang out through the auditorium, said, Is there no end to his talents? The great Tommy Cooper got so cross when his jokes got no response, he just walked to the front of the stage, told the audience to F off, strode off into the wings, packed his bags and got the next train home. And when the Glasgow Empire finally closed its doors in 1963, comics all over England breathed a sigh of relief. Well, that concludes our tour of Glasgow and the Central Belt. In the next episode, we explore more of Scotland's Central Belt, taking in the cradle of the Stuarts, the birthplace of television, the world's most beautiful car factory, Scotland's first in flight, the site of Scotland's great escape, and the home of golf. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert and Emma, to my executive producer Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review, and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Music